0: Achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Once again, we're joined by author Philippe Sands. Last week, we discussed um, his family history, Nicholas Frank, um, uh, and the extraordinary uh, story of, of Nicholas Frank's life and uh, attitude to his father and the issues that come out of that. And today we're going to uh, talk about his latest book and podcast, The Ratline, which came out of meeting Horst Wächter in the course of writing. East West Street. Many of you will have uh, listened to Philippe's brilliant podcast of the same name a little while ago. Um, uh, believe me, though, the book is an absolute treat and goes into um, uh, c- colossal forensic detail as to exactly what Otto v- Vector got up to. It um, leaves you in leaves you in no doubt. I mean, uh, uh, to the extent of his son's, uh, I think, is delusion the right word? I don't know. Because Horst Vector, who's the son of Otto Vector, um, is someone that Nicholas Frank told you you should meet. That's what you told us uh, uh, last week, Philippe. So how did you meet
1: Horst Vector? And he must be a terribly nice man because he carries some baggage. He is a nice man and I'm very, very fond of him. Um, He's a troubled person, though. He is the son Mm. of Otto and Charlotte. Uh, Otto was an SS Gruppenführer. He was the governor of Krakow. He built the Krakow ghetto. He was then the governor of the district of Galicia based in Lemberg. Uh, which uh, territory included half a million Poles and Jews who perished uh, whilst he was governor. Uh, And he was the deputy... Including your family. Including my grandfather's family, absolutely. And he was the um, deputy of Hans Frank, who we were talking about uh, last week. And the families were very closely connected. And uh, those of you who've read the book will know they became even more closely connected almost, we can talk about that in due course, because one of the things we didn't have a chance to talk about last week was sex and the Third Reich. Well, we talked about it a bit, (laughs) but um, (laughs) people were having affairs all over the place. Anyway, one day Nicholas Frank says to me, you must meet my friend Horst, because he was the governor of Lemberg where your family was, and I'm sure he'd be interested in meeting you. So one thing leads to another... Nicholas and I travelled together for the first time early in 2012 to visit Horst at his schloss in a tiny village called Hagenberg. He's completely impecunious, but he does live in a remarkable hundred-room castle that dates back to the 14th or 15th century, the Knights Templars, of which he is very partial to these folk. Um, And he's lovely. He wears a pink, t-shirt and Birkenstocks and he's warm and makes cups of tea and likes a schnapps and a vodka and he loves telling stories and he loves people who are interested in him and even if it's about his father he will talk till the cows come home Um, one thing led to another Uh, I wrote a portrait of him a profile uh, for the Financial Times magazine that's back in 2013 He wasn't too pleased with it. He took to the comment pages of the Financial Times to complain about the inaccuracies of my article that had been inadequately complimentary of Otto Wächter, but our relationship (laughs) was repaired. Then we made a film together, which was catalyzed by the profile. Uh, The director of Downton Abbey, uh, my dear friend David Evans, made a, a documentary called My Nazi Legacy. He didn't like that either. The title of the film in full is... My Nazi Legacy, What Our Fathers Did. He wrote to me a few days later saying it's the wrong title. It should be What Our Fathers Did and Didn't Do. And he does have a sense of humour, which is one of the things I like about him. But again, after a dip in our relationship, things picked up again, and the next project was the podcast. This was made possible by the fact that in the filming of the documentary, at a certain moment, Nicholas expressed the view that Horst might be a new Nazi, uh, which I disagree with, actually. I, I, he's not. He really isn't. He accepts that his father was deeply involved in the most terrible things. He just doesn't want him characterised as a criminal. Uh, and Nicholas has retracted that uh, characterization, actually. But that led Horst to ask me... How can I prove that I'm not a Nazi? Which is actually a deeply existential question. I mean, how do you prove (laughs) that you are or are not a Nazi? So I had to think on my feet, which is, of course, what we're trained to do in court. And I said, I've got a terrific idea. You've got all these archives, all your mother's papers, letters, diaries, tape recordings. Why don't you give them to a museum? Because Nazis don't give such papers to the Holocaust Museum in Washington. He said, that is a terrific idea. And a few weeks later, the archivists of the Holocaust Museum in Washington descended on Schloss Hagenberg, digitised everything, and bless Horst, he says to me, would you like a USB with all the material on it? I say, well, yes, that would be interesting. So a few days later, a used sticky taped envelope drops through my letterbox with a 24 gig USB containing his mum's and dad's entire archive now this is all in German and it's largely handwritten and very difficult to decipher I go straight for the photographs which are pretty amazing but they linger until the great historian Lisa Jardine comes for dinner she's my colleague at UCL Uh, she's already very ill at that point she comes with her wonderful husband John And we're talking over dinner. She's just given her inaugural lecture uh, at University of London. It's called Temptation in the Archive. And the theme of the lecture is the value or not of family material, personal letters. Uh, What is their historical value, if any? It's just a fascinating subject, actually. And I tell her about this. She said, oh, this is amazing stuff. Come over. Let's talk about it. Bring some of the material and let's... uh, Let's see what we can do with it. Anyway, one thing led to another. We hired some research assistants, her marvellous PhD student, James Everest, uh, my marvellous assistant, who happened to be German, Lea Mein Klinkst. And four years later, we had transcribed, digitised, translated 8,666 pages of letters, diaries and transcripts and discovered, I think it's fair to say, um, a unique trove of material Which goes into the nooks and crannies of a loving and complex relationship between a top Nazi couple. I don't think there's anything quite like it. Uh, I don't, I don't certainly don't say we've done it correctly or properly, and someone else couldn't have done it better. But the material is so rich that it, it sort of writes
2: itself. One of the things that really struck me about about reading the book, listening to the podcast, is. Because it, because they don't say it themselves in as many words, what is it that draws Otto into that? I mean, because actually he takes quite he makes quite a lot of sacrifices to become a Nazi. Yeah, he does, uh, uh, and to become a devout Nazi, and, and of course so does Charlotta. And you know, Charlotta, you know, she just seems so ordinary, a, a sort of upper middle class girl going on trips to London, you know, making English friends, going skiing for weekends. I mean, you can almost sort of identify that person today, and yet, yeah. You know, a, a hop and a skip later. She's a sort of rabid anti-Semite. She's, you know, wife of a Nazi. She doesn't seem to bat an eye about any of these terrible things that are going on. Um, and, and he's doing what he's doing. So what, what is their motivation? How? Do, and I suppose this is this is the eternal question about yeah. narcissism in the first place. Yeah. You know, what, what, what is it about rational, clever, well-educated, on the face of it, perfectly nice people, what turns them into supporting this utter monstrosity.
1: It's the 64 million dollar question, isn't it? And it comes with a second question, which is, could I do it? And I think, you know, I put my hand on my heart and can I exclude completely I would ever get involved in such horrors? Who knows? I hope not. I mean, that was what fascinated me. In the case of Otto, he's born in 1901. He goes to a fabulous law school in Vienna. He becomes a lawyer, but he crosses lines pretty much immediately. 1921, he's beating up Jews in the street. 1923, he joins the Nazi party. Um, and I think what I learned from that is once you've crossed one line, it becomes a lot easier for you to cross the next. 34, he is involved as a leader in the plot to assassinate the Chancellor of Austria, uh, Engelbert Dollfuss. 38, he comes back to Vienna after the Anschluss, and he stands on the balcony overlooking the Heldenplatz, one metre from Adolf Hitler with his wife, Charlotte. They walk down a large marble uh, staircase inside uh, the Hofburg, and at the bottom of the staircase, he says to his wife, so what do I do? I can carry on being a highly paid lawyer, I can make plenty of money, or I could take a job in government. Take the job in government, she says. And he gets uh, retained working with Arthur Seiss-Inkvart, the new governor, as a state uh, commissioner responsible for removing Jews and other undesirables from public employment. And he removes at least 16,000 people. But most remarkably, if we're going to talk about crossing lines, he removes from their professorships at the University of Vienna Law School his own teachers, and within a year, both of them are dead. I mean, this is, you know, I'm a university professor. I mean, it, you've got to be, you've, I mean, I'm literally lost for words on how someone does that to their own teacher. And then, of course, war begins on September 39, and he's appointed as governor of Krakow and then governor of Galicia. And the even greater horrors begin. I think what I learned from that is that in his case, he grew up in a very nationalistic family. His father was a military man in the army of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and he accommodated those nationalistic and anti-Semitic views. Charlotte is more complex. Charlotte came from a very wealthy family. Her father was a steelmaker uh, in a small Austrian town called Mürzerschlag. and she grew up moneyed, wealthy, uh, but an anti-Semite very early. And that comes up in the diaries. You know, she travels to England in 1925. She's, I think, a difficult young lady. And they parents decide that what you do with difficult young ladies is you send them to England to a girl's boarding school where they will be beaten into shape. And she goes to boarding school in Eastbourne and spends a year in Eastbourne under the tutelage of a headmistress one Ida Foley, you couldn't invent this, sister of Arthur Conan Doyle. And Charlotta Charlotte falls in love... Charlotta loves the English. And one of the reasons it transpires that she loves the English is that they are even more nationalist, in her view, than the Germans and the Austrians. It's marvellous. They understand nationalism in Britain. And she spends time there in the early 30s, during the time of the you know the nationalist unity government and she loves it she stays on southampton row and and gets to know oswald mosley and you know is uh, introduced into a different society and just to cut fast forward there's a marvelous letter she sends to otto right at the end of the war uh it's sort of april may 1945 It's coming to an end, and she writes to her husband, why can't we make an alliance with the British against the dreaded Soviets, the communists, the Bolsheviks? Ah, yes, I'd forgotten, of course. It's those wretched Jews always contaminating everything. But for the Jews, we would be in bed with the British. And you really get a sense um, that it is so deeply ingrained in her that it was unshakable. Her later daughter-in-law whispered in my ear. I think on the second occasion that I went to Schloss Hagenberg to meet Horst, you know, Philippe, she was a Nazi until the day she died. A true yeah. believer. Wait, well, and you you get you, that sense. The, you, the, you tell. I mean, it's it's dryly funny
0: the story of when they when when she's a uh, picked up at the end of the war that she they ask her if she's in, the Americans. I think it's the Americans ask her if she's a Nazi. She says, Yeah, of course I am. And they say, well, that's extraordinary. We haven't, found, we haven't met any yet. We've been all the way across Germany. You're the first one. No one's admitted to it so far, which is quite extraordinary. I, also, mean, yeah. I mean, one of the striking things is that that, that her saying that the Jews, the Jews will wreck the relationship that we could have with the British. These people really did believe this stuff. That's what's so really incredible. And, and you get, I mean, the you know, v- v- day, v- day has just passed. And in the, in the last throes of the war, you do have Himmler keeping some Jews back that he thinks he can use as a bargaining chip because world jury will go, oh, right, he's yes. all right, really. He he's saved some he saved some Jews lives yeah. Because they really Very... did actually think that Jews ran the American government, ran the British government, ran, and were
1: running the world, world war against them. It's, yes, it's yes of, they did. But, but I think the critical question is the origins yeah. of this, because, I, 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 and a lot of people ask me that, and I'm not a historian, and so I'm not an expert of that period, but just reading the material... The sources seem to be, in part, in her case, her religious upbringing. I think she would have come across material in church which blamed the Jews for what happened to Christ. And then, of course, what was absolutely decisive, I think, for Otto and Charlotte was, was the Treaty of Versailles um, and the humiliation and who had imposed that humiliation and they blamed the money people. Extracting vast sums from Germany and the humiliation of Austria,
2: and and I think also the humiliation of Austria is is in a way it sort of can be seen to become sort of worse than the humiliation of Germany because Germany is still a comparatively new state in 1919, whereas Austrian the the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire you know this has been going back for centuries this is the habsburgs you know this is this is an ancient lineage which is suddenly dramatically no more and austria is so reduced by what has happened that you w- you can understand why people would feel that even more keenly than they do in germany which is considerable uh, absolutely i mean
1: it goes from being you know the extension of the holy roman empire right to a tiny little rump state With no access to the oceans, with no coal fields, with no resources, I mean, with a population that is utterly diminished. And worst of all, with all these wretched Jews coming in from the east and occupying Vienna, and that emerges in the material. That all these foreigners are coming in and occupying our cafes and our living spaces and so on and so forth.
2: It all sounds so rather familiar, f- doesn't it?
1: Well, I have to say, I mean, you know, it's very—we we don't just go around in circles, but we don't really learn so much from history. But, but there is much that is familiar, and um, I think we are in different times. But you're right; there there are there are hints of something that looks awfully. Um, Awfully yeah.
2: familiar, yeah. Well, the line is that history doesn't repeat itself, but patterns of human behaviour do, and, yeah. or it rhymes. Yeah,
0: yeah. It doesn't repeat itself; it rhymes, isn't it? the, the uh... right. Uh, um, <laughs> yeah. But, but yeah, yeah. I mean, the, one of the, one of the I mean, the the, 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 thing that's very good in the podcast is, is that we have you have Stephen Fry and Laura Linney um, uh, filling in the gaps, and giving giving voice to Otto and and Charlotta. And it is really, really fascinating that she also um, was recorded it being interviewed. So you have her voice on the podcast speaking, speaking to us from uh, 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 in the
1: 70s where she sat down and made tapes. No, I I mean, you couldn't invent it. So I didn't I wasn't aware of this until I plugged the USB into my computer and I came across a file. I mean, everything was roughly curated. It was called Turnbender, uh, basically recordings. So I click on that, and there are 12 or 14—I can't remember—digitized cassette tapes along with their covers, which have been digitized. And I, I go onto one of them, and I'm listening to Charlotta, and it's very weird because what transpired was that, at some point in the 1970s, she engaged herself in a historical excellence and wonderfulness and those are the recordings that we have and they are amazing recordings there's one for example with a very well-known nazi journalist from that period melita Um and they meet in april 77 in the restaurant of the four seasons hotel in munich actually a place that i've been it's an amazing place and they're sitting there and you can listen on the tapes you can hear them you know they they're 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 clinking their glasses, drinking a toast to the good old days, reminiscing about the wonders of Oswald Mosley and the Fuhrer. Sometimes he went a bit far, but you know I'm with him, he did great things for us, and then charlotta says, "You know, I was a true believer um and then Melita says yes i i I was too, and then one of them says, but it's indistinct as to which one it is." Still am, she says. I couldn't work out if it was Melita uh, or Charlotta. Um, I mean, they were true believers to the end, it was the good old days, but from that recorded material, of course, extraordinary stuff emerges, like the five burials of Otto Shall I? Is this the moment? We discovered this in the recordings. So one of the recordings is um, in uh, I think it's
3: 1974
1: and it takes place in a cemetery in a small Austrian town called Fieberbrunn, which some of your listeners will know as a ski resort. Um, And it is the burial of Otto Wächter, 74. So this really confuses me because I thought he'd been buried in Rome on July the 16th, 1949. This took a lot of sorting out, but the upshot is as follows. He dies in mysterious circumstances in this Vatican hospital, On the 13th of July, 1949, he is buried in the foreigners' cemetery, Catholic area, Verano, Rome, 1949, July the 16th. Ten years later, the religious gentleman, the bishop who has been tending to his needs whilst on the run, gets in touch with Charlotte and says, Oh, I forgot to tell you, as your husband was dying in my arms, he... um, did say he'd like to be buried in the homeland. Come and get him. Uh, so uh, Charlotta arranges for him to be exhumed from the Verano cemetery ten years after he's been buried. Permission to take his body is refused, uh, in the sense that he ca- she cannot take him outside of Italy. This is pre-European Union. He's got if he's if he's exhumed, he's got to be buried somewhere else in Italy. Perfect, says Charlotte. I have a daughter married to an Italian in Palermo. I'll build a mausoleum for him there. Permission is granted. Car is driven down. The body is exhumed and driven to Palermo, except that it is not. Uh, The body never arrives in Palermo. And the next clue in the archive is a set of newspaper clippings from the 1960, the year 1960, with the headline in German or Italian, Interpol searches for the body of Governor Vechter. Okay. I mean, literally, you could not invent this stuff. So what has happened is that she has driven the corpse illicitly out of Italian territory, but to where? It never emerges again. So I say to Horst, well, well what happened? He looks at me and says, you want to know what happened? I said, yeah. He says, mother brought him home. So I say, well, when you say he brought him home, what do you mean? She says, well, she took him to her house and buried him in the garden. The garden? Yes, House Wartenberg in the middle of Salzburg. What do you mean, in the garden? Well, she says, you know, my, my mother ran a, a school for German and lots of English and French children would come and learn German and they would play in the garden and they would not have known that the father was buried under the tree. Anyway, that is the second burial of Otto Wächter. The third burial is about a decade later. She moves houses and gets herself a country pad up in the countryside, takes him with her uh, and buries him for the third time. Then um, she decides that that's not good enough for him and arranges for him to be buried in the local cemetery. And That's the one she records in Fieberbund. And then when she dies in 1985, she insists that he be moved again this is the fifth burial of Otto Wächter. And she wishes his casket to be placed on top of hers in the cemetery at Fieberborn. The five burials of Otto Wächter. I mean,
2: one of the things that's so compelling about this is because on, on its basic level, it is a love story, isn't it? It's just between two Nazis. And, <laughs> uh, and you're, you're drawn into their drama. And, you know, I, I felt sort of conflicted because there are bits of it where... You're wanting him to get away and, and make it to Rome and, and escape, and you think, "Well, that's all wrong." No, I don't. I want him to be caught and, you know, strung up. But, but, so it is. It's, it's very clever what you've managed to do because, you know, I mean, that is
1: it, that is that is part of the writing. I mean, I of course, I, I don't I don't accept that any human being is only a monster. Yes, um, Otto Wächter did monstrous things so did hans frank but he was also in the case of Otto wechter a father a husband a lover a friend a son and he will on occasion have done decent and humane things and i think to understand a human being and to get back to the 64 million dollar question you asked how did decent people do this we need to understand these people in the round the danger of doing that of course is you humanize them uh, i mean i feel i have to confess a tad of respect for the way Charlotta brought up her six children in extraordinary difficult circumstances. The war ends on the 8th and 9th of May and Otto Wächter disappears off the face of the earth. He escapes. He's gone off and hidden and he hopes to make his way on the rat line to Argentina. We can come back to that in due course. She's left holding the kids yep. and she's left with no assets, no resources, no and nothing. she's not just
2: holding the and kids. She's holding the kids and trying to keep him alive in the mountains. Uh, and
1: trying to earn money, and yeah, looking after his dad, well, and well, looking after and, her and,
2: parents,
0: and the the it's over. The empire's over. Their ambitions are shattered. So their life's work is in tatters as well. And 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 he's on the run because of his life's work. It's 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 a perfect cocktail for for, for uh, that that family's
1: ruin, really, isn't it? I think it's fine to be brought back to an empathetic state, provided you don't ever quite forget what they did. And um, and also to recognise that Horst is in no way responsible for what his parents did. Uh, I mean, I worry sometimes that his justifications come close to um, a sort of complicity, but I don't think they ever cross that line, at least not with me. It doesn't come across that way.
2: I think it's much more that, that, you know, here is someone who's desperately trying to sort of a sage himself of that sense of guilt he 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 respects his uh, and adored his mother and he's got to come to terms with the fact that he adores his mother who was complicit to a to quite a large extent really and he's got to kind of square that and that's something that's impossible to square and so what he's constantly trying to do and this is how i read it is he's trying to see the good in his in his father and by turn his mother which and and distance himself so that he can so that he can feel happy in his love for his mother particularly but also to a certain extent his father without feeling guilty about it and and that's impossible to square and and that's why he's so conflicted and and i feel desperately sad for him i mean i i I, you know he he comes across as a very very likable character and and i don't think it's you know anyone with just an inch of compassion could feel any other way
1: That's exactly how I feel. I mean, he's in many ways a tragic figure. Yes. Um, He's a decent person with decent values, absolutely. And he's embraced me and has been extraordinarily generous. And I feel protective towards him for that reason. At a certain point, in particular, when we were making the film, David Evans and I were concerned about his well-being, um, and 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 you know, I went and got assistance from a psychoanalyst and a psychiatrist to get advice on the care that I needed to take. I I wanted to make sure he was going to be okay, but it also meant that in the writing of the book, I had to include stuff that I don't like. Um, I promised him that I would allow all of the arguments that he made to be set out and set out fairly I would not express views on them I would allow the reader to form their own view readers are smart they read the material as they want and and so you've got there's a degree I suppose of repetition but that's because Horse does repeat himself and I had promised him I'd given him an undertaking and it was a matter of honour to respect that undertaking and to make sure that he could not look me in the eye and say you didn't Report this. What I believed. You didn't report this. That I said my father did. So it's all there, a little longer than perhaps it needed to be. But that was out of respect for Horst, and that was, um, th- that was very important. Of course, it-, it was a work in progress, and I've written the book as things unfurled. You know, you're translating, interpreting thousands of pages of documents. You only discover things as you're going along, and and in writing, you'll understand this, both of you, you want to be authentic. You don't want to make things up. You don't want to say you discovered something right at the end when you knew Mm. about it right at the beginning. On the other hand, you're trying to write a narrative that the reader can follow. But certain things did crop up in extraordinary ways. So it was only very late on that we got to Charlotte's diaries of 1942 in the summer, when, of course, we uncovered in the diaries... You literally... I mean, this was astonishing. She had fallen in love with Hans Frank. And so the two lives come together. The two men's lives come together. And then you dig deeper and you learn that it gets to the point where Hans Frank has to remove himself from a room in which he is alone with Charlotte because it's so darn dangerous. And she's dreaming about his smell and his shoes. I sent the material to Nicholas near Hamburg. And Nicholas's email back was wonderful. He just wrote, sensational. It means that Horst could be my brother. <laughs> and I, you know, <laughs> I mean, the things that went on in these lives that add to the complexity of our understanding, we have to keep our eye on the bigger picture. She knew everything, Charlotta. She knew what her husband was doing. She knew and supported his actions, she is 100% complicit. That does not mean she is only a monster. She was also, I think, a complicated but decent mother and she infused in her son a love of the father. Is that a dishonourable thing to do? Well, perhaps if it means dear Horst fails to cross certain lines of recognition, but on the other hand... um. I can understand what she was trying to do. I think it was misguided. I think it was wrong. I think she should have embraced what her father did and been honest about it, Uh, but um, she chose not to. Incidentally, one of the joys of doing a podcast and writing books is there's extraordinary, intelligent and smart and interesting people out there who write to you. And I've had the most incredible communications, including one that just came in a few days ago, a gentleman in Montreal right and he's not the first uh who writes and says i was listening to you talking about your book the ratline and um it rang a bell uh but it was only right at the end of the uh, story that i realized that the charlotte vechter you were describing is the same charlotte vechter who i stayed with in 1972 <laughs> at haus wartenberg of course i didn't know that her husband was buried in the garden, but she took a shine to me. I stayed with her for two months in her country house. Uh, she was, uh, this student writes, the kind of English-speaking person she took a shine to. Uh, I didn't quite know how to <laughs> interpret that, but uh, I left it uh, as it was. And he said, I just thought she was just uh, an elderly German or Austrian aristocrat who'd fallen on hard times. It's been a bit of a it shock
2: not incredible. incredible. To,
1: to learn who she really was. We need to take a short break now. I'll see you in a tick.
0: Now then, before we get back to our fascinating chat with Philippe Sands, we've actually got a very special segment to bring you in association with Company of Heroes 3. Uh, Jim, I don't know if you're interested in the uh, allied campaign in Italy at all. I don't know if it's
2: thing that's crossed your desk <laughs> yeah possibly <laughs> maybe yes uh, i mean i've got to say company of hero three is is kind of it, it could have been made specifically for me it has to be said you know the deutsche africa corps in north africa um land, landings and conquest of sicily and then before you know it whoa there's italy and and we're kind of careering off from out of salerno to foggia um, and, and before you kind of double back to monte Cassino. so what's not to like frankly
0: we've been joined by steve melle all the from vancouver who's executive producer at relic entertainment and who created the game steve welcome thanks for joining us thank you both uh it's great to meet you both um so tell us you know uh how do you pick the campaigns if if because company heroes is it's a huge game but uh, massively popular um you can play it on by yourself or you can play it, uh, um, in multiplayer role online and all that sort of stuff how do you arrive at a
3: campaign to fight um, we asked that question of our community right at the outset. Uh, so Company of Heroes 1 was focused on the Normandy invasions. Uh, Company of Heroes 2, we focused on the, the, the Eastern Front. They, w- they love the variety. They want to see uh, different uh, factions. They want to see the different uh, l- landscapes and the different ways of playing and give it, giving you variety within that space. And the Mediterranean Theatre provides that. You've got coastal regions. You've got deserts. You've got mountainous terrain. You know, so we, this this was uh, urban areas. So you know, this was a, an exciting space for us to to different views, different gameplay, different factions. Everything was kind of packed in in the Mediterranean theater. And in terms of factions,
0: if you look at we we call them Duke forces on on the podcast, dominions, okay. UK, Empire. You've got yep. you've got Gurkhas in this game. You've got mm-hmm. as well as Tommies and Aussies. You've got you've got people from. All over the world.
2: And you've also got all the right kit as well. Which which I, I thought was great. You know, it's fantastic. To see Stuart's um, Stewart tanks, and that's what I like because you know I'm, I am a bit of a geek about this stuff, and I want my details to be right.
3: Yeah. So you touched on the um, the 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 kit and the 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 authenticity of of what we're doing yeah, here. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk. We we had a ton of fun with do it, with building that out for our game and, and doing the research and doing the homework within uh, you know the history books and uh, local historians with that in our neighborhood here, and then uh, uh, speaking to uh, cultural consultants to ensure that the language we're using is accurate even and 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 the the outfits and the uniforms everything. So we had a ton of fun doing the homework and the research for that. We wanted everything to feel authentic that we don't take you out of that immersion and that feeling of the time. But occasionally we've made decisions that Where someone who does know the exact fact would know that that specific upgrade on that Stuart tank wasn't there in that particular (laughs) battle. It it shows up next, you know, next year or next month. Uh, And so we have, there are fine lines there because we, you know, we we have an upgrade tree, and so you you're able to upgrade your vehicles or your weapons or your units and your and, and within a battle. But so we had this fine line between gameplay authenticity that when you're in there, you feel immersed and you're loving it, uh, and you, you you know there's nothing super taking you out of the, the experience. But then at the same time, there was that accuracy that where occasionally we broke a few uh, rules there um, or or historical facts just in order to get that gameplay experience through.
2: Well, Steve, I can absolutely tell you that that I think I think most of our listeners will really, really enjoy this. It's 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 just got the right level of geekiness to it and detail and facts and options, and and as as Al says, the fact that you've got kind of you know Gurkers and what have you as well. I think it's absolutely terrific.
3: The other thing is, even uh, of your listeners, your audience, if they are new to Company of Heroes, the franchise, uh, we've added a feature that I think uh, all our players, even people who have played it before will enjoy, is um, the tactical pause. And what tactical pause is... So. For those who don't know, our game is a real-time strategy, and and you're on the field making decisions, capturing resources in order to fuel your uh you know the your war machine and get it building up your uh your troops and and sending them out on the field. It there's a lot going on. You're you're looking from uh, above, looking down on the map, making decisions, uh, grabbing you know your vehicles and your your units, and you're moving them into uh, to, to places at the same time while the enemy is coming after you and. Those resources. So with tactical pause, it it allows you to press the space bar, pause the action, and you can then make all the commands and orders. And it'll show you a nice line of where your units are going to go, where your vehicle is going to go next. And if you want to throw a grenade at the end of that uh, movement, you can. And you toss a grenade, press space bar again, and the action takes off. And it, it, sometimes you know sometimes there's a lot going on, so this helps you take stock of the situation. Uh, grab a sandwich if you need to. Uh, and- <laughs> or, and, and 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 then send it back into action. Do you see days gobbled up playing this, uh, or are you, are you a man of remarkable self-control? <laughs> no, it, it, uh, we've got a. It's a significant campaign. The single player experience is over forty hours of, of gameplay wow. for players to get into. So wow. if you're, if if wow. you know, you can spend your time in there and uh, and really just get immersed and and. There's I when I again I am a proponent of video games in general and so I think there's great value in your dollar to have all that time and then that's just the single player experience if you want to continue to play against the the AI we have uh, this you know we've built out this an in, intelligent uh, you know system in the background for to play against the computer and you can try out different strategies and uh, we call that we call that comp stomp because the idea is that you're you know you're stomping on the computer over and over <laughs> again and you can join up with your mates as well and. You play play two you know you can play 1v1 and one against the computer you can play 2v2 3v3 or if you had four of you you'd come together and just have a laugh and and beat up on the computer and uh it's a ton of fun as well
2: uh well, Steve I I've, we think it's great we think it's absolutely terrific and it's out now isn't it you can play it play it today on your PC
3: yes you can people interested anyone uh can go check it out at companyofheroes.com it's available on PC and Steam if you head there you can find it fantastic terrific
2: well thanks so much for joining us steve and many congratulations
0: welcome back to we have ways of making you talk and another of our special archive episodes with the brilliant philippe sands we're talking about otto vechter a high-ranking member of the ss and how he ended up as part of the rat line in rome before his death before he was buried the five times, Wächter, um died in Rome, didn't he? In the bosom of the, under the protection of the church. I think that's
1: fair to say. Well, under the protection of a religious gentleman, Bishop Alois Hudal, Austrian Bishop of the Institute Anima. Who, um, who was, who was the sort of focal point of a, of a funnel for, um, or yeah.
0: a, 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 for escaping, yeah. escaping Nazis. And uh, uh, you, know, we, we, you mentioned, touched on Argentina earlier.
1: That's, R- roughly, generally, where they were trying to get to. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, I mean, Peron was rather open to these characters, and many of them headed there along something that is described in uh, the, 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 the the material that I was given as the Reich migratory route. I think we call it yeah. now um, the Rat Line, and all roads lead to the Anima Institute, right in the heart of Rome. Under the direction of its then venerable leader, Bishop Alois Hudal. Now, Hudal was a complex character. He assisted in the exfiltration of others, uh, including Klaus Barbie, Joseph Mengele. Uh, he was not directly involved in Eichmann, but he knew all about that.
2: It was part he of was the involved system.
1: Involved in Priebke getting out. To, uh, as he well, was involved he? in Hoping, Priebke yeah. getting out, but you know. Again, nothing is ever black and white, so I'm doing a radio show in New Zealand last week, and a lady calls in and says, "This is astonishing. I know this man, Hudal. My father was a New Zealand soldier who was caught by the Germans in 44. He escaped as a prisoner of war. He made his way to Rome and guess who saved him. Alois Hudal, and he was a no. friend of Alois Hudal's for the rest of his life. My God. I know. So again, Absolutely nothing, amazing. nothing is quite what it seems. Because Houdal's pitch
0: wasn't it? Because well, he was an, a, a Catholic anti-communist, but his pitch was, um, "I must be, be as Christ. Someone in trouble, they come to me. I need to look after them, and that's my that's my duty as a Christian." It just so happened that they were all SS people and and well, <laughs> Nazi the, brass. The, the,
1: the the director of the archive who again was very generous and i express through you uh, deep gratitude to him he has a wonderful name dr x which again uh, you know the film the film writes itself uh, but at one point at one point doc, dr x said to me no no he would let anyone he said if Joseph Stalin had turned up at the front door he would have let Joseph Stalin and I said really you wouldn't really <laughs> believe that he said no no truly he would have and I said how many Jews did he let in he said he let lots of Jews and I said well show me the material you've got all these records with other characters where are the Jews where are the communists where are the leftists I'm still waiting that's yeah. 4 years ago yeah but thank you dr <laughs> x thank you dr x for your generosity <laughs> extraordinary
2: amazing oh. absolutely amazing uh, uh just before we go though, i must just talk about your hike through the alps philippe because yes um, we're gonna
1: we're gonna take one together i
2: hope well i would really really love to do that uh, i the, the, i mean what's so amazing about that part of the world as well whether almost it, as whether it's the tyrol or whether it's actually in austria itself it's just it is so achingly beautiful isn't it i mean it is absolutely i mean it, when, you, when you're when you're picturing the sound of music and all the rest of it and Julie Andrews singing on a hill that's what that is what it's like it is all those lovely beautiful wooden chalets and huts and and alpine pastures and all the rest of it and that's what he's what that's what he was hiking through wasn't it?
1: I mean we had his letters and his diaries so we knew that after he came down from hiding in the Alps he goes to Salzburg in in the end of 48 he he's spotted in the family home so he has to uh, make a hasty departure. He goes to Innsbruck, and from Innsbruck he then walks across the Dolomites, which is an incredible hike. I mean, it's up to three thousand meters and down to an area you know well, Bolzano. Um, we were able—I was able—with the assistance of a wonderful Austrian uh, historian called Gerald Steinacher. If people are interested yes, in this I know, material... I
2: know
1: him, yeah. He you wrote you yeah. a wonderful book, his PhD, called Nazis on the Run. And That's Gerald, yeah. Gerald d- helped me identify the route. And from the descriptions of the twinkling lights of Soldan, we were able to work out precisely which route he took. So last summer, I decided that I would follow that route. And I went with my then 19-year-old daughter... Uh, we started in a small Austrian village. We did it in a couple of days. We did about 24 kilometres in 24 hours, up to 3,000 metres. We saw not a soul. We stopped at a couple of mountain huts. It was Did you sleep overnight in these huts? No, we didn't, but, we, but that was my error. I fell into error. I miscalculated how far it was, and I really almost got us into terrible trouble. My daughter basically saved us. We also took a wrong turn, which she noticed about a kilometre after we'd taken it and um, she got us back on track. Uh, but but next time I do it, and maybe we'll do it together and do a podcast as we cross, because it is extraordinary. Um, we did it in June. Otto Vechter did it in February. I mean, it, I cannot even begin to imagine, I describe it in the book, from his own words, the crevices, the glaciers, the ice mountains, the ice flows. He did it at, in one night and at great risk to himself. He was a hardy individual. Uh, we did it. It's in extraordinary, the really, because
2: you know, there's no, there's no kind of you know, North Face and and kind of Gore Tex in in February 1949, is there? I mean, there's there's you know, nothing. You're, you're wearing I mean, a pretty basic kit. I mean, you know, it's, it's sort of a set of brogues, and that's about it, isn't it? it
1: you cross that path that he took in February. I mean, we would not be able to do it. Um, it's a mountain ski area. I did it in June. We did it in a difficult moment. I hadn't appreciated. The Austrian tourist board said, no, no, it's fine. Of course, you can go. But a- a- May, um, April was the snowiest April for 30 years, and May was the coldest May. So we crossed in snow. We crossed knee-deep in snow, in shorts. Uh, and it was an experience I will never forget. As you can imagine, it was, it was deeply bonding with a child, I mean, in a way that was amazing. I'll never forget it. And at one point, we did get into difficulty, and we were saved by a lovely Italian. We were so thrilled, so thrilled to get to the other side, I can't tell you. Um, it's one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth. Extraordinary.
2: Isn't it? Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It really is yeah. absolutely, totally gorgeous in every single way. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it was, uh, it was very special. I mean, this whole journey has been special. Um, and I have to end again by thanking Horst because, but for... Well, and thanking Nick. If Nick hadn't introduced me to Horst and Horst hadn't participated and given me access to the ex- extraordinary material, which I suspect he somewhat regrets, um, or other members of his family might... Um, none of this would have happened but I think he's done a service because I think he's helped us to understand I think it's it's valuable we treat the material respectfully um, we respect family matters we understand how the rat line works and of course we understand the next phase which is the Cold War because what Otto Wächter didn't realise was that he had in arriving in Rome stumbled into a world of espionage and an unbelievable alliance of vatican officials uh, italian fascists senior retired nazi ss officers and the blessed americans and as you know from the podcast and the book i had the great fortune of being able to turn to someone who was there in 1949 john le uh uh, you know, sharing with us his experiences. Yes I, indeed. I mean, indeed. You know this but world. Don't... You guys know this world. I did not know about this world and it was a hell of an eye opener.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's well it's it's fantastic. And I think all the work you've done actually Philippe is has, has been yeah. um yes you're you're absolutely right with about Nicholas and, and horse but but the fact that you've brought it to a wider audience and You know, we are constantly wanting to kind of further understand that Nazi period and how it happened and why it happened and what motivated people. And I think you've done a really, really important work to to open our eyes to that. So, um, yes, I salute you for that. I really do. And and quite apart from that, all that Cold War stuff, which we're not going to spill the beans on on this, is absolutely... (laughs) Fricking sensational. Incredible. I loved it. And I find all that early Cold War stuff just endlessly fascinating, whether it be fast jets through to I mean, kind of spies uh, in Rome. It's, it's all amazing.
1: It's literally, literally unbelievable. Um, thank you, both of you. Um, I mean, it resonates still today because, again, I won't give away too much, but uh, the fine American officer who was leading the hunt for Otto Wächter and others turns out to be the same fine American officer, you'll have read in your newspapers a few uh, weeks ago, about an encryption company that was set up in the Cold War that turns out to have been owned all the time by the CIA. And <laughs> dear Tom dear Tom Lucid is the man who set it up. Yes. So uh, I'm fascinated by that period. Um, I don't know how much more I'll go into it. The next part of the story, just to leave a hint of what is to come, because it's never-ending, is that when... Uh, Otto Wächter arrived in Rome to be parked in the Vigna Pia Monastery by uh, the religious gentleman bishop. He occupied a monk's cell which had been recently vacated by another former comrade. That former comrade was called Walter Rauf. And Walter... Ah, gosh, yes. uh, And Walter Rauf uh, left Rome in April '49 for Syria, where he assisted the government for about a year then made his way along the rat line to South America. Via Argentina, he ends up in Chile in 1955. And in 73, it is said he became a chief interrogator for the regime of Augusto yes. Pinochet. You could not
2: invent it. So I've, I've interviewed his grandson in, Ch- in Santiago, and I've also visited Walter Routh's grave. And you'll have seen this, Philippe, I'm absolutely certain. On YouTube, you can see footage of a clip from Walter Ralph's funeral, um, uh, in the main cemetery, the big, the city's cemetery. It's a beautiful, beautiful place, um, full of kind of sort of wisteria and all sorts of stuff in there. And there's his grave. And in this YouTube footage, you can see it. There's a, there's a whole bunch of Nazis and they're standing over his grave going, Heil Hitler. I kid you not. It's absolutely amazing. And there's a letter we unearthed from him and it says, and it's written in nineteen sixty four or five when he's in Santiago and he's writing to one of his old Nazi colleagues and he says Give me one good SS division and I'll lit this country into shape in two shakes.
1: I I, I I I I need to talk to you about this. Are you still in touch with the grandson
2: Ralph? I can get to him and I can also, uh, I don't know whether he's still alive, but there's a the most amazing gentleman called Rudi Hyman, who is a who is a German Jew who escapes in 1936, let's say, um, joins the British army in the war. He is in North Africa, in Tunis, interrogating German prisoners on behalf of the British. When Walter Ralph has just buggered off just in the nick of time, having raided the island of Jerba and the ancient Jews of Jerba and nicked all the gold from one of the most ancient synagogues on the planet. It's, it's absolutely amazing. And he came, became a very famous architect in, in Santiago. I've got an interview with him, which you can have, but, it, but it's, it's amazing. it's will follow up on that,
1: but the exercise I'd like to do is I'd like to take Walter Rauf's letter to Otto from May 1949 and hand deliver it back to its original owner, the grandson. I'll be in Santiago in the autumn. We'll be in touch on that.
2: Yeah, well, definitely. It's a deal. Brilliant. Well,
1: thank you. Thank you, Philippe, so much for
2: joining thank us. Thank you, Al. Um,
0: uh, it's been, it's been yeah. sensational. Uh, entirely mind-blowing. Fascinating. Um, Fascinating. Uh, all of our listeners, please do um, read the the, the the brand new book, The Rat Line. It's a fantastic read. And, oh, it's um, so
2: good. It's and, so good.
0: Uh, really extraordinary to actually get inside uh, the family dynamic of someone in the sen- at the centre of the Nazi court, really, uh, it's it's the most extraordinary thing. Um, thank you so much. Uh, as ever, thanks to our listeners. Keep the emails, tweets, and messages on Patreon coming in. We will be back with you soon, Philippe Sands. Once again, thank you very much. Until very soon. Yeah,
3: thank brilliant you. to be
0: on. Thank you so
1: much for having <laughs> me.
2: Cheerio. Bye. <laughs> Cheerio.